Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We are in Parshat Behar uh, in the book of Leviticus, and we are getting uh, a collection of laws about how the people of Israel should be. We're in chapter 25 of the book of Leviticus. The first thing that we get is the sabbatical year and the jubilee. So we'll talk, we'll talk about that. Um, remember this is an, a, an agricultural community, right? So this is, these are people who depend on farming. They are people who, their wealth is the surplus of their farming and their land, right? Because the land, of course, has a potential to yield, uh, that which will become their material wealth. And they live in relationship to the seasons and the harvesting of those crops. And we talked a bit last week about what happens if my crop fails several years in a row. If there's a drought, you know, we're in California right now. You know, I keep hearing on the news how many trees have died, right, from this drought. If you have an orchard and that is how you make your living and you are in this, your crop fails. Now what do you have to do? You have to borrow money to plant again. And now your crop fails a second year. Now you don't have the money to pay back the loans. So if you want to try again, you need more capital. So that's the way people descend into poverty. And it's the way that they begin to have to sell off portions of their land the clan, right, the extended family group, has to sell off portions of the land and or children into indentured servitude. So this is this is common in the ancient world, very, very common. So, and as we mentioned last week, there are more slaves in the world now than ever before, lest we get all judgy, right, about how people made it work. There are more slaves now than ever in human history. So this is still how people deal with economic challenges. They sell off what they have or they sell off children. A, because they can't afford them. B, because it's one of the only resources they might have left, which is the service of that child and or themselves. People sold themselves sometimes into indentured servitude. So that is who we're dealing with in this Parsha are people who are in that situation. So the right relationship to tenure on the land is at the heart of the commandments here in terms of it's set in the desert, talking about when you get to the land. Of course, it's written by people who are in relationship to the land, right, and trying to um, figure out what a just and equitable approach is to stopping the cycle of poverty. So in our country today, I think this is a really important question. How do we break the cycle of poverty? We know sending a kid to college, right, often interrupts the cycle of poverty for a family at a time when we're cutting federal spending on the Pell Grant, right, on help getting the people who you economically need it the most to college. It, this is an ancient system 
for asking the big question, what do you do when the scales have tipped so in favor of you know one group and so against the other? Because really, it's almost impossible to climb out of that. It truly is difficult. The wealth that you have keeps getting you more wealth, and the people who are in poverty have less and less ability or resources, right, to get to move out of poverty. So whether or not this is, you know, a system that actually worked, we don't know. But it certainly takes very seriously a society's attempt to be just, being based in looking at the system itself and interrupting that cycle of wealth and poverty. So let's look at a little bit at what at what Torah says about it. Somebody read it twenty five one. The Lord spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai. Speak to the Israelite people and say to them, When you enter the land that I assign to you, the land shall observe the Sabbath of the Lord. Six years you may sow your field, and six years you may prune your vineyard and gather in the yield. But in the seventh year the land shall have a Sabbath of complete rest, a Sabbath of the Lord. You shall not sow your field or prune your vineyard. You shall not reap the aftergrowth of your harvest or gather the grapes of your untrimmed vines. It shall be a year of complete rest for the land. But you may eat whatever the land during its Sabbath will produce. You, your male and female slaves, the hired and bound laborers who live with you, and your cattle and the beasts in your land may eat all its yield. Okay. So, six years, you have absolute freedom to work the land and to benefit from its yield. Um, And you're going to do the two prunings a year that you need to do in order to keep everything healthy and keep everything growing. But in the seventh year, this is unique to the holiness code, lying fallow becomes known by the term Shabbat. So just as you observe a Shabbat, so too the land gets a Shabbat. So Something, again, that I think in some ways we've lost is that connection to the environment as something other than um, material for us to consume. That this is a more dynamic relationship, a more organic relationship, that just as you need Shabbat, so does the land. So it gets a, a rest so that you're not going to go in and do all of the things that you would do in order to ensure production, right? But you may eat whatever the land during its Sabbath will produce. So you, there's always going to be some growth, even if you don't do anything, and that you can eat. And, and everyone that you are supporting, right? Your hired and bound laborers, your, your slaves, your cattle, it's fine. All right. Eight, verse eight. Now, is this a Shabbat for the land or for the people? For the land. But it, it is also for the people in the sense that they don't get there's certain kind of work they have to refrain from that year. But that is that is not about not the, the people. That's about that's imposed. Shabbat is about stopping and desisting in order to participate in the sanctification of that seventh day, this is imposed. So it's it's really not about the resting of the labor force. It's about the land being entitled to a rest. Why? 
why is the land entitled to a rest? Why would this have started as a practice? Because things grow better after they have crop rotation. Uh-huh. Crop rotation, right? Things grow better after they've had a rest. Humans, right? Something we just still don't seem to get very well. They still could have set it up if that was truly the reason that, you know, one-seventh of your field you just don't plant every year, plant the other six-sevenths. So, you, you know, or be allowed to store grain during that year, but we're, this is, we're not allowed to do either of this. So I think it's really about being dependent on God is the uh, is the point of it. Yes, the, the land needs to rest, but we, it could have been set up a different way. 100%. Yeah. This is this is not just about crop rotation. 100%. It connects with creation. But it makes sense that it would have developed as a concept for those who were in relationship to the land that, like people, the land does better with a rest, and therefore it's an injunction, right, so that you must... You must let that be completely because there's another element that we're going to look at, which is because that means I have to trust and let go of my normal relationship to wealth, which is to work some part of my land. Because this speaks to me that it's, it is divinely inspired because no farmer in his right mind is going to say, let's not plant crops for a year. The, I'm sorry if I may intervene. Uh, since I came from there. So what you did, we had a certain amount of land. Part of it was cultivated, the other one was addressed. That's what she's saying. That's what she's, that's what she's saying. That's not what this is. This says nothing is planted for a whole year. She's saying any farmer in their right mind would reject this. They would plant part of their crop. Exactly. Exactly the point. You've just proven Pam's point. So, so we understand that they would have understood the land needs a break and does better after a break. No farmer in their right mind would say, so let's not plant anything for a year. That is Shabbat. That is, and Bert, to your question, that's where the heart of Shabbat in terms of this, I think, is is the divine injunction to stop controlling and manipulating um, right, at, at, and and it's at the point of not planting, um, n- not pruning, not right. So in that sense, a, a voluntary refraining, definitely about a spiritual practice of Shabbat. Um, and we're going to look at the deeper layers of that. So go to eight. You shall count off seven weeks of years, seven times seven years. So that the period of seven weeks of years gives you a total of 49 years. Then you shall sound the horn loud in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, the day of atonement. You shall have the horn sounded throughout your land, and you shall hallow the fiftieth year. You shall proclaim release throughout the land for all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you. Each of you shall return to your holding, and each of you shall return to your family. That 50th year shall be a jubilee year for you. You shall not sow, neither shall you reap the aftergrowth or harvest of the untrimmed vines, for it is a jubilee. It shall be holy to you, and you may only eat the growth direct from the field. Go on. 
In this year of Jubilee, each of you shall return to your holding. Then, when you sell, sell your property to your neighbor, or buy any from your neighbor, you shall not wrong one another. In buying from your neighbor, you shall deduct only for the number of years since the Jubilee, and in selling to you, that person shall charge you only for the remaining crop years. For the more such years, the higher the price you pay. The fewer such years, the lower the price. For what is being sold to you is a number of harvests. Do not wrong one another, but fear your God. For I am Adonai your God. All right. How does this reset the system? How does this break the cycle of poverty? Everything's returned to the original owner. In 50 years, everything reverts back to the original owner. So what did you get back? <clears throat> ah, you got back your land. Well, you, you did, you're here in your 50th year. <laughs> I'm, uh, oh, right. Right? So at, at once every couple of generations, the playing field is leveled. So that those who had to sell off land and all that get it back. So you're never selling, Torah tells us here, you're never selling your land when you're sliding into poverty. You're selling years of use of the land. It says here, you're selling a number of harvests. Hmm? You're selling leases. So you're leasing the land, essentially, because everyone is leasing the land from whom? God. Oh, love that. Love this group. So satisfying as a teacher. So, um, right. So everyone's leasing the land from God. Some leases are longer than others. Um, and if so, if I my crop fails three years in a row, I sell jewelry, right? My land. What that means is, I have we count from now until the next jubilee. And the closer we get to the jubilee here, the cheaper that lease is because the less time Jory gets to use it. Because once Yovel comes, I get it back. Yes? So this is the attempt at leveling the playing field. And it's not going to be frequently because that would mess up everything. Right? But once every 50 years. So that at least it's not forever now, your clan is the one that used to be Right? Whatever. And has been, you know, in poverty for five generations. Is there any evidence this ever happened? They ever did this? No. <laughs> right? This is a challenge with having no extra biblical sources for many things. Um, including the... Okay. Maybe you want to turn this off or pause it. Um, including the entire sacrificial system. We don't have any indication that they actually slaughtered a bull, you know, every time it says in Torah to to bring a cow and a bull and a kid and a whatever. It just, the amount of livestock that would have been involved in that many sacrifices of every Israelite on every occasion, if you, I haven't done it, obviously, but but the scholars who really are looking into this say it's just, there's just no way the land of Israel would have supported that many bulls. I mean, it's just, it's just not possible. So either it's an exaggeration or it never really was Enacted, it was. It's the. It's the priestly. But as Rabbi Bernstein, fantasy. As Rabbi Bernstein has said, this is not a history book. No. There is a point. Oh, there's sort of an immediate uh, version of this 
and in our estate tax, which doesn't work like this is mm -hmm. but it does work in terms of its intention originally to break up large estates and concentration of wealth. It was never meant to raise revenue. It really was meant to stop the clearly developing increasing wealth by a smaller number of people. Mm -hmm. Mickey? On, on one excavation, we, covered, we uncovered a sacrificial altar with a trough for the blood to run down. So they must have had something. All scholars agree that there was sacrifice. All scholars agree on that. You know, that was just the ancient system in the ancient Near East. It was absolutely the technology of the time for, right, for communing with the divine. The system that we see outlined in Leviticus and in other places in Torah in terms of what they were to offer and that they offered those offerings on that calendar doesn't seem feasible. We know how much a cow costs, right? Even to, I was just walking through the grocery store um, and I looked at hamburgers. I was like, you know, Angus beef hamburgers, they're, you know, they need to be sold right now. And it was like $2.99 for this huge package. And I just thought to myself, if we paid the real price for what meat costs to grow, like to, right? I, I wouldn't be able to afford those hamburgers. So, so we artificially subsidize and support cow, right, happening. But if we really were in touch with how expensive cow is, we wouldn't be eating as much meat as we're eating, and they did not. And there's some evidence that, that they didn't even eat what it says here that they consumed. It just would have been too extraordinarily, monumentally expensive. It was aspirational, exactly, right. Okay, so, where were we? Uh, you say there's another moral overlay on this in verse uh, 17, because this isn't just doing this to God, it has to do with the fairness, and it's just do not wrong one another, the idea of having justice between people. Mm-hmm. All right, someone read it, 18. You shall observe my laws and faithfully keep my rules, that you may live upon the land in security. The land shall yield its fruit, and you shall eat your fill, and you shall live upon it in security. And should you ask, what are we to eat this seventh year if we may neither sow nor gather, nor gather in our crops? I will ordain my blessing for you in the sixth year, so that it shall yield a crop sufficient for three years. When you sow in the eighth year, you will be you will still be eating old grain of that crop. You will be eating the old until the ninth year, until its crops come in. So we're gonna. Lisa, sorry, no worries. We're gonna look at some exposition of this. I'm. Handing out to you Rabbi Bradley Shavit Artson, his commentary on this idea of Shemitah. So go to those of you who have it. I'll begin reading for those of you who don't. 
the third paragraph down, talking about this idea of letting the land lie fallow, is a radical shift in perspective. It is not what farm can I next acquire, nor is it in what car should they see me driving to that farm. This injunction reminds us that we can... that Right. What we can't, that we borrow the field for our benefit during our lifetime, but that it is not ours to possess, right? So that we, we just, we just discuss this, drop down to how was the Jubilee year announced? How was the Jubilee year announced? With the blowing of the shofar. That's what Yovel means, the horn. So the whole year got to be named for the horn. Other people interpret that word other ways, which is very interesting, but most scholars turn to the fact that the Yovel was the actual horn. When was the Jubilee announced? On Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. On this most introspective of days, this is precisely the day when Israel is commanded to release, to restore, to simplify. Shemitah and Yovel are so important that the ancient Midrash, Pesikta Rabati, records that they are among the seven commandments that illuminate the world. This is the paradox of life and of Shemitah. We truly own only what we give away. Those things that we hold on to are taken from us, break, or perish with us. So go drop down to the last paragraph. The possessions we hoard, accumulate, acquire, become someone else's trash. But when we designate what we possess and we use it to make someone else's life better, we own that achievement forever. We are all of us finite. We are all of us mortal. And we are alive for a very short span. We can use that time to live lives dedicated to a delusional comfort. Maybe if I own more, I'll win. Expressed as greed, the desperate need to acquire emerges from our own fear, our own weakness, our own terror at the dark and the loneliness. We purchase and acquire, hoping that the acquisitions will somehow be a guardian against all that terrifies us. The reality is quite the opposite. What we think we own, we use for a short time. And then with our will or against it, it will be taken from us and recycled. A really important perspective, particularly for those of us in the modern world, right, where so much of what we're trained to be and do is about acquiring, right, and about not having or being enough, yes? This is, even for the biblical time, not a natural human approach to the world. I have enough. It's all good, right? Even at the time of Torah, it was understood that there was going to be anxiety around letting go and not acquiring, Acquiring meaning, right, the harvest of the crops in, in their case. In our case, fill in the blank, right? Acquiring what? A bigger paycheck? More status? Stuff? Time? Use? Uh, you know, fill in the blank about what we always think we don't have enough of and want more of. Rabbi Milton Steinberg reminds us, he writes, in the book to embrace with open arms, that it is erroneous to think we can cling to our possessions or each other. Life teaches us to embrace and release. 
We commence life hugging our parents and then release as we grow into independence. We embrace our children and then send them off when it is time for them to go. We hug each other and at some point we will have to release that hug too. We embrace with open arms. And when you can embrace with open arms, then you hold love in your heart and that embrace never ends. This idea of grasping, of grabbing, and trying to hang on is what causes, in every wisdom tradition, right, will tell us, causes so much of our pain and our suffering and our grief. That it is normal and natural to grieve loss, to not want to let go. That is normal and natural and fine. That's how we're put together. The challenge is to cultivate the capacity to release when it's time. With all the sadness that comes with that, with all of the awareness of loss, with all of our fear around change, right? With all of the fear of emptiness to learn to release, to let go. <laughs> My daughter had on her screensaver, let go or be dragged. <laughs> and I'm like, she has no idea. <laughs> and right, like, even she, like, we, if we don't let go, we will be dragged. There's a professor from Princeton whose name I, escapes me at the moment who just wrote a book about religion and acquisition, and in particular religion and capitalism, that dating from the 1930s, there was a movement among some people to equate getting richer and having more with the ideals of religion and saying that religion, in fact, says this is the right thing. We experience that even today in some quarters where they say, well, you know, the poor are just moochers and takers and all that. But it's... I work hard for what I have. Right, right. right. What about that? That attitude. Yeah, I even know, I mean, I know some Catholics who are very, very disturbed about the new pope because he keeps on talking about the poor. Mm. Because he keeps on talking those about Those troublemakers, the, those who keep talking right. about the poor. So what you say about... Yeah, but there are people who try and turn religion around. Of course. Sure. Of course. But every wisdom, all good religion, as, as Kushner would say, all good religion knows better. The rest is bad religion. It's not even religion. All right. So we... I know that was a radical statement, but... Um, I believe it. So here we go. So the given. So we do not have to possess to be worthy. This giving away is God's gift to all of us. We don't earn the gift. We live it and we share it. We have the opportunity to live in the light, to shine our love on each other, to care for the mourner, to heal the sick, to feed the hungry and shelter the homeless. Shemitah is a call to assist those who lose in the relentless striving to acquire because their humanity will enhance our own. I want you to put this away somewhere and read it on Yom Kippur. Or coming up on Yom Kippur, I'm going to put it in my high holiday file. Um, because he, he wrote this as a, as a Yom Kippur sermon. Yeah, as a Yom Kippur drosh, and he finishes it out that way. Um, so I want us to revisit that at Yom Kippur, this day of really living in what can't be taken from us. What can't ever be taken from us is our ability and capacity to love, 
to care for those who are sick, to care for those who are lonely, to care for those who need, right? To care for one another. That can't ever be taken from us. And that is what it truly means to have, right? And, and to live in a way that, that is never about more. It generates more. The way we live, there's, and we're going to look at Rabbi Yael Shai, who talks about the way we live, what that generates. I'm going to start counterintuitively since we've already entered the topic. I'm going to start on the back of her first page. So when you get your packet, you'll see Yael Shai, Rabbi Yael Shai, go to the back of the first page, to the big paragraph in the middle, because that's where we are right now. The laws for the land's Shabbat are a challenge to a very basic human mistake when it comes to nearly everything we come into contact with. We grasp. She quotes her friend Shuli Passau, who gave a sermon at JTS Rabbinical School, noting that children, as soon as they learn to speak, often point around them and claim, mine. Passau argued that this tendency continues throughout adulthood for many of us with mine, 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 remaining a constant strategy by which we try and gain control over our world. Because if it's mine, I get to say what happens with it, don't I? I get to determine what we do with it. I get control. If it's mine. Of course, the problem with the strategy, says Laura, is that the more we grasp, the more we suffer. Our life becomes narrow and tight. And that which we cling to inevitably, as Rabbi Artson said, slips through our fingers. This is because, as God is quick to remind us in this week's Parsha, nothing in this life is really ours to own. Right? right? Go back to, or um, actually go to the, her next page, to the paragraph that says, like giving the land a rest. Like giving the land a rest, offering up a portion of one's property or earnings to the poor is critically important in Judaism. And it is very, very difficult. It requires us to calm our fears and believe we have enough to give. Sometimes the very act of giving to others is actually what shows us that we have enough. It literally opens our hand, so that we don't grasp so hard around what is, quote, mine, and puts us in a spacious heart place, a holy temple of sufficiency and ease. Take care of each other, God tells us. You have enough to do it. So we tend to come from this place, right, of scarcity, of, you know, I'm afraid to give away because I don't have enough. Not only do I not have enough, I need more to be mine. Because then, right, and fill in the blank then. (laughs) Or I might not have enough later. Or I might not have enough later, right? No, it is not calling for asceticism. No, it is not. It is saying you don't own to the edges of your paycheck. The the outlying parts of your paycheck belong to me, says God, because it all belongs to me. You get to use most of your paycheck 
or your dividends or your whatever, the edges of it belong to the poor, belong to those who don't have. And the spiritual wisdom of that is when we're giving of that, it always teaches us that we have enough. So I want you to look at, I know I'm doing this a little bit backwards, um, but, oh no, wait, drop down to the next paragraph. Look at what she says here. And I'm not talking, by the way, about people who truly don't have enough. I'm not talking about that. That's not what Torah is talking about. Torah is talking about the people who have enough. Yes? And how we define that is another conversation. That is an entirely another conversation. But look at what she says. Sufficiency mentality is not something reserved for the wealthy or even middle class. Just as scarcity mentality is not automatically the fate of low-income people. In fact, a recent report in the Chronicle of Philanthropy reported that wealthy people donated 5% less of their income to charity in 2012 than they did in 2006, while middle-class people gave 5% more. The poorest Americans, on the other hand, making $25,000 a year or less, increased their giving by a staggering 17%. Think about that. Who was able to understand that they had enough to increase their giving by 17%? The poorest who understand what enough looks like, feels like, actually is. The wealthiest decreased their giving. The people who had the most felt like they had 5% less to give. Well, in, in, in fairness, it's, it's also possible to say, because I haven't seen the study, but the absolute dollar giving could well have gone up. Yeah. The 5% less could be as a proportion of income. Yes. And so they could have like raised their contribution to such and such from 30000 to 40000 or something. The aggregate amount of their giving as a percentage of their income might have gone down. Yes. And which, we, don't, we don't know that. Which feels meaningful to me that there's a percentage decrease among the wealthiest versus the poorest. I mean, that's that's the breakout I want to look at. The, the 5% decrease in the wealthiest aggregate, whatever, even if dollar amount went up, percentage decrease, and an increase of 17% in the poorest part of our Population, right? Has anyone seen the movie Happy? The documentary Happy? Fabulous, fabulous fabulous documentary. The opening scene is a rickshaw um, driver, puller, like somebody who pulls a rickshaw um, in like India or someplace where it's absolute devastating poverty, right? Running barefoot through puddles and mud and everything else gets to his home, which is a like metal lean-to essentially, with a shelf on which they sleep, open to most of the elements. And he's talking to the interviewer about we all sleep on this platform, and then they cook below that, and they sit and eat and do everything below that. And when the monsoons come, it swamps, of course, the entire thing, um, which is a lot of the time. And he says, and when I come home from work and I see, I'm going to cry. And I see my son sitting there. I'm happy. And I'm happy to come home. 
and be with my family and my neighbors. And they share everything with their neighbors. And I think to myself, we live in a time in the wealthiest country in the history of the world. He was happy. How many of us can say that? Truly say that most of the time, that we are happy like that. That is the deep teaching of Shemitah and of Yovel, is that we spend so much time and energy, so much of our talent, so much of our mental capacity on getting more. I think about all of the talent, all of the, all of the potential to fix so many of the world's challenges that would be freed up if we got it, that we have enough. And I'm not judging. I'm truly not. I work a lot. I, I get it, right? I'm one of us. I'm, I'm just saying, I, it just makes me sad to think and, and touched to think how many, how many ways we potentially could be so much healthier and fulfilled if we were about the things that truly, truly make us wealthy. And what this world would look like if we took all the time and massive amounts of, of material and, and time and effort and research and everything else to just get more. And, you know, it's what keeps me watching Star Trek. Like, you know, like <laughs> to live for a time in a future. And I get it, it's a utopian vision. But, you know, like to live for a time in a future where really it's about fulfilling your potential at serving the world, you know, and not and that everyone has enough, that everyone gets, everyone has, everyone's fed, everyone's educated, and you just get to serve the greater good with your own unique capacities and talents, and you're encouraged to do that. What if that's what our kids were coming into? Imagine, right, how we would parent them differently if we weren't so obsessed with, oh my God, are they going to make it? Right? What do we have to do to them to have them make it in this world? And I'm somebody who drugs my child. I drug my child so that she can get through every day of school that, that we make them sit through. Prescription. On a prescription, of course. <laughs> okay. Yes, Bert, let me be clear for the podcast. That, uh, <laughs> yes, it's a prescription. Um, because we, because we put them right in this situation and, um, and ask them to function healthfully and, and well and thrive. Okay. Sarah? I'm thinking about a challenge of why the poorest give more than the wealthiest. And maybe it's because they have greater capacity from their own experience to identify with what it means not to have. I think you're 100% right. You're 100% right. Those who are closest to it empathize the strongest with what it is not to have and, I think, have a greater capacity for or, or greater tolerance of risk, you know, around not having, not having, they, they can make do with a lot less. Do, do you know what I mean? Like pe- people who have experienced 
poverty are often, not always, but are often people who say, you know, I'll make it somehow. We'll make it. You take this. We'll, we'll figure it out. Because we've always figured it out. We've always, we know what we can live without. Now, some, some, of course, it works the other way. I don't ever want to feel that I'll never be hungry again as God is my witness. Right? Says Scarlett, I will never be hungry again and, and go the other way. I'm not saying that doesn't, that doesn't happen as well. Joelle? Yeah, about the other part of the story, uh, uh, there's some uh, companies in Europe where they hire people now. The, the questions they ask is, what do you like the most to do in life? Because they want to place people doing what they really love to do because they want to strive. What a concept. So, yeah, but it works. Right, mm-hmm. right. Right. Because you want to do what you love doing. And then you're much better at it, aren't you? Oh, yeah. And much more eager and creative and... David? About five years ago, there was a book published called Who Gives? And it was a study of charitable giving in the United States. And it showed across all economic strata that people with religious leanings gave more than secularists. In every area, and not just the churches or synagogues, to the United Way, to whatever charity it was. And when you think about that today in light of the Pew Report that we are becoming a more secular country, you begin to wonder, what is it going to take? Are you, gonna, are you living in a dream world where the reality is this is going to reverse, not increase? Right. Which is why I believe so strongly, I was talking last night to the ECC parents about why put your kid in a Jewish nursery school? Like, what? This is part of the reason is because I really do believe sacralizing things calls us into obligation to do what's hard for us and what's right and what's just and what's compassionate and empathetic in a way that nothing else does. And that's what that research bears out, I think. Well, and and we could have that discussion. I'm not saying that government shouldn't have a lot to do with it. I'm saying we, as a as a nation, right, are have not put that. It, it, what I hear you saying is also it's not, it's less and less at the top of our agenda. Um, I want to go to um, the beginning of her piece and leave us there. The beginning of Rabbi Yael Shai's piece. What is enough? When do I have enough? When am I enough? As soon as I ask the question, I hear an answer within myself. It is always the same answer, quietly animating so much of my daily life. Beneath the stress and anxiety, the endless striving and the running lists of things I need to purchase, accomplish, or adjust in my apartment, my wardrobe, my job, or my body, here comes the answer. Never. You will never have or be enough. And at the same time, she says she realizes she can know that since it's never going to be enough, she can feel a sense of letting go. I realize the paradoxical truth exposed through the asking of the question right now. I'm enough right now exactly as I am. This moment, as it is, is enough. 
That paradox is where the heart of this teaching lives, I think. And it's about finding our way to the starting place of it will never be enough so that we can relax. I will never have enough time. I will never have enough resources. I will never be enough. There is endless need. I am unlimited resource. I will never be enough. Once we can really hear never, there's a way we can relax about it. <laughs> okay, I'm never going to have or be enough. All right, and when I can do that, when I can really relax into that, she's saying, I'm able to see that this is enough right now. What I have to give right now is enough. The time I have is enough. The resources I have are enough. And again, I'm not speaking to people who don't have enough, truly, that are hungry. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking to us. She's talking to us. Um, and that that is an incredible spiritual practice. Whenever we feel ourselves reaching and grabbing and in that scarcity mentality to, to somehow find the way to relax into, because I'm never going to have enough. So let's just deal with what is right now, right here. And... And, and be aware that that's enough. And the next step is to then be grateful for that. That I have right now. Right? That I didn't get the phone call today that it's terminal. But I'm serious about this. I mean, I, you know, I may see your face, but I get that I sit with people all the time who got that phone call. I didn't get that phone call today. So I have right now. Not only is that enough, but that is an amazing gift. And it, that, that is the religious attitude. That is about gratitude. That, I'm not saying you have to only be religious to get there. I'm saying it's, I think at the heart of what we do um, as a religious tradition is, is get us to that place of, of, of demanding to do the hard things around justice, about letting go so that others can have enough and to, to move us into a place through doing a lot of that hard work into a place of gratitude for all the abundance that we have. I want to close with the words of the poet Ruth Brin. Behar, Leviticus 25, Testament of Freedom. The people of America read about the sabbatical year and the year of the Jubilee as a testament of freedom. In the beginning, they engraved the words of Leviticus on the Liberty Bell. Proclaim liberty throughout the land unto all the inhabitants thereof. Generations later, the slaves, in hopes of their freedom, sang the year of the Jubilo and go down Moses. You made us to be free. You set the spark in every human heart. Now help us fan the spark to flame to light our way. Now, help us break the chains, tear down the walls. Help us bring freedom at last to all the world. So it should be speedily and in our day. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website www.ourki.org